Hi everyone. Welcome back to Filmcraft. I don't really have a welcome big... Welcome back. Yeah, welcome back. That's a whole spiel. Welcome back. We have a, a fun episode planned for you guys today. I'm actually pretty excited for this one. It's a topic that is irregular, I would say. But this week, we it's a dual topic episode. We're going to talk about when to take and look for advice and when to upgrade your shit which is like literally your physical stuff that you use for filmmaking. Um, I feel mm. like the upgrading aspect of this episode will be heavily Latif sided, which is not a bad thing because you are definitely the more technical of the two, <laughs> but I think it's going to be fun. And this, I don't know. I don't really hear other podcasts or other filmmakers talking about this a whole lot, aside from the argument of rent cameras instead of buy, which has, you know, a lot of logic at his foundation. Yeah, let's start with the let's start with the technical one. This all came up because you're thinking of investing in a new product for color correction. And just give the brief background to our wonderful listeners of how this topic came to be. I am going to be doing color on another feature or maybe in like a, a month-ish, I think. And I was just going to upgrade some of my equipment specifically for color work because I find the more color work I do, the faster I want want it to go and also the, the more uh, comfortable I want it for the people that are working with me. It's probably so also thinking, a precision thing as well, right? Like when you have the physical dials in front of you, it must be a lot easier to get what you want in a quicker way and get exactly what you want compared to using like a trackpad or a mouse to turn virtual dials on the screen. It depends. I, you know, I think most people assume that, you know, if you're a professional colorist that you must use the, the panels. And I was considering getting the panels, but I've never actually worked with panels before. So really, I, I what I want to do is try them out and see if I like it. Did you not even use them in film school? No, they didn't have panels in film school. Um, but a very did you, poor film school. Did you revolt <laughs> with this? Were you like, you know, oh, I'm paying top dollar. Where's my fucking panels? <laughs> no, the color correction was like a, something they touched on for like a couple days during the post-production class. It was never a, a thing that you could really go into during film school. It's just something that was mentioned. Yeah, that's fair. All right. So I think this is pretty much where like the fundamental question of this subtopic of this episode comes from. You are a colorist. You do a ton of color just as your quote unquote day job, right? So where does the decision come for you to go from these virtual dials and everything to having this physical piece of hardware that will essentially add another level or make your job easier? And when would you recommend that people go do that? Because I'll be the first to attest to this for my for myself as well. I always fall into the trap of I want to do something, so I go out and buy that equipment. And that's been to my detriment a lot in my life. Like I remember when I first got into film and I wanted to break into film when I first moved to Vancouver, right before I went, I built this super high-end PC and then I never used it. I think you have it right now and you've probably used it more than I have. I'm recording this episode on that PC. 
Yeah, exactly. So I dropped a ton of cash and I never used it for what I intended it to to do. So I can't recommend people go out and buy a high-end piece of equipment when they're just starting out. So can you walk us through your process of how you got to the point where you started needing this equipment and when you would recommend viewers to get go take that route? Well, I mean, starting with the, the panels that we were just talking about, like not every colorist uses panels. There's some professional colorists that just use a mouse and a keyboard still, um, just because that's how they prefer to work. Um, you know, most colorists probably would be using panels, but you know, there's some really talented ones that just don't use panels, and that's just how they work. It depends on the system they use. You know, it depends on the room. Depends on you know their personal preference for setups. Um, it depends on the studio they work at too. Maybe who knows, but. Uh, I've never used panels myself, so I'm thinking, would it be better for me? Would I like using panels? I've been doing mouse and keyboard myself, and I don't find that it's... Uh, I don't find there's anything that I'm not able to do. I think the panels, they give you a, a much finer touch, and they also make things a little faster, but if I take the time with the tools I have now, I can probably get the same result. But I, I think it's partially about, like, uh, speeding up the workflow and, and maybe doing things um, so they're a little easier for myself. But, uh, you know, a part of it is also like presentability, you know, when the client comes into a room and they see a nice set of yeah, was- panels in front of the computer, they think, oh, wow, I wouldn't know how to do that at all. Yeah, but- I was just going to touch on that, and I think that the... That can be either a great benefit or a great trap to people that are looking to get into work like this because there is that aspect of, you know, looking professional. And then if you are just a straight noob, it's a fake it till you make it kind of thing, right? Um, So just talk a little bit more about that because I think that's something that deserves more than a sentence or two. Well, there's (laughs) – I I don't think you can fake it till you make it as a colorist Um, (laughs) because you're the last – you're one of the last parts of the chain in a, in a project. And if it looks like shit, you, there's no way you can dance around that. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it, no, no, it doesn't look bad. You're just looking at it wrong. It's like, no, it looks fantastic. Don't you see my panels? Um, <laughs> you know, like if you, at the end of the day, if you're delivering a quality professional looking image and you did it with like a fucking iPad, as your controller, then kudos, you've done you've done the job, you've made the client happy. That's really all you're trying to do, right? So it doesn't really matter what the tools are. Having having the professional equipment, it sells you better to bigger clients, or maybe clients are you know, just a class above what you normally get to work with. Say if it's commercials or say if it's like, you know, um small feature films with like hundred thousand to a million dollar budget instead of going to the you know to the finishing house they'll be like well this guy's a colorist and he's got his own shit so he could probably do it you know that it might get you into that place and having having the gear just gives you a, a little more professional of a look but you know fundamentally you have to have the essential tools to do the job if you have those then you're okay the panels are just kind of an extra thing if it helps you great if it doesn't whatever you can still do it the old-fashioned way i guess but i you know i want to try them out and see how i like them and if i don't like them i'll just stick to the the way i've been doing it 
but fundamentally your monitor is important. You have to make sure you have a good professional monitor that can send a, a clean feed to, and you have to make sure it's calibrated. You have to send a clean video feed from whatever machine you're using to the monitor that's not um, messed with by the, the software of the computer. It needs to be a clean, unfiltered feed into the monitor that's not being messed with by um, the color management of the computer. So you're getting a 10-bit signal in whatever resolution that looks exactly like it's supposed to. And I think that's basically the basic requirement to do good color work. And if you have that, then you know, you're pretty much good to go. Make sure your room is in the right place. But you know, at the moment for you know a few projects I've done, I've just been doing it that way, pretty much uh, computer, one uh, monitor and then me on uh, a mouse and keyboard and I'm getting pretty good results but I feel like for speed and also if I have a client in the room I'm going to want a bigger monitor that they can also look at and then and that I can use and judge the image from as well so it's just like a small upgrade um, but I've gotten little like pieces of equipment for that as well um, that I think will just speed things up like a little SSD that I can put footage on and, you know, put like um, project files so they load faster and stuff like that. Uh, but it felt like the right time because I'm about to start another feature film and I figured um, I might as well get through this one pretty quick because uh, it's a very low budget um, project and I don't want to spend too much time on it. So I gave uh, them like a schedule and of how fast I'd like to get it done and not spend too much time because it is a flat rate. So it's really just about trying to make sure it's all done pretty quickly and stuff like that. Totally. I think that's very sound mind of you. Um, so just to kind of shift the conversation into more of a generalized area, let's move to the topic of camera. Because I think that's something where, you know, obviously color, being color is very, very specific and being a colorist and upgrading color equipment is only pertains to colorists, right? But with cameras, that's going to pertain to anyone who's obviously a cinematographer or anyone that just wants to go out there and try and shoot, shoot some shit, right? Yeah. So when would you recommend people actually go out there and get something decent? And, you know, if it's someone that's... No, let's just stick with that. When would you recommend someone goes out there and gets a decent camera? Well, I think if you don't have one, that's probably a good time to get a camera because if you're going to shoot anything, you need one. Well, I guess even from there, define camera. Like if it's a total noob, how much should they drop on a camera? I mean, you could get a decent mirrorless camera for under $700 used, which will be plenty enough to shoot whatever you want. Uh, you know, most, I mean, for early stuff, it's not going to go to the movie theaters, right? You know, if you're making short films and stuff like that, stuff that's going to web and film festivals, you know, you could get a decent mirrorless camera. You can get a used Sony A7S. Um, and when that camera came out, everyone's like, this camera's amazing. And then now there's like two new versions. So people are going to be like, that camera sucks. Let me get the newest version. And you can pick up that camera used. Um, and I would imagine it's still much more than fine to shoot on. Oh, absolutely. I think I think there's like this race to the top of like um, 
and it's it's not a problem with the big industry because the big the big industry is going to keep growing and it should because that's how we get better stuff going down the food chain but the problem is there's there are people who are like at the very bottom of the food chain who think they need to shoot on the big industry cameras and that's not true at all i think you should shoot on the smaller cameras that fit your budget and your size and make that you know work for you um because really you know when you don't have like these giant cameras and all that stuff it makes shitting a little easier i think um yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, even on the note where I mentioned, as soon as I decided I want to get into film, I built a PC that was capable of editing and did nothing with it. As soon as I moved to Vancouver, I was like, well, you know, I have this editing computer, but I don't have anything to shoot with, so I should probably go buy a camera. And I remember looking into it a little, and it's like, well, people seem to like these red cameras. Mm-hmm. So I looked into getting one, and, you know, what were ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000? And realistically, the money that I saved by not getting that camera, we shot party stories with. So it's like, you know, what would you rather do? Go buy some camera, which isn't a red camera, but I'm sure it's quite fine and will do exactly what you need. And you can take the money that you saved and go shoot an actual movie. Or would you rather buy a camera and then that's it. You have a camera. Well, there's a, that's a very specific subset of people who are in the market to buy red cameras. Oh, totally. Um, I think a lot of times it will be like, you know, younger cinematographers who want to make an investment like that. But I don't really think there are too many people who are going to gun for the red camera on the lower levels. But they'll want to shoot on those cameras. It's a tempting thing too, though, right? Because you look at it and it's like, oh, this is the industry professional that are our Alexa, right? So even if it came down to something where it was like, I'm going to shoot a short, I want to rent an Alexa, and it's what, like a thousand bucks a day. And to your point, you can buy this camera for 700 bucks, which will do you just fine. Yeah, that that's probably a better decision. But, you know, that's also something that you have to kind of know um, and research. I think that's why it's important to like play with equipment and, you know, rent something for a day, even if you're not shooting anything and just like see what you can do with it. Um, it you know, there there is a technical aspect to filmmaking. I don't think you can be a filmmaker and not know anything. <laughs> you have to kind of know like something about like the actual um, technical craft of filmmaking um, to some capacity, because if you're going to be creating images, you should know like how how they're captured even in the in the slightest smallest way um so like testing a camera or just like testing something and then like playing with it in an editing platform or something is crucial because you know you may not be a professional and you may not get the best images but you can kind of see you know where it starts and where it comes from and then you can start to see what the big differences are between the little cameras and the big cameras you know there's there's tons of footage online that you can get from the big cameras that you can play with. You can download red red helium footage if you want it. There's samples on on the um, internet. You can get black magic footage. You can get um, Sony, um, you know, Venice footage if you want it. There's there's examples online. You just play with those images and see what the differences are. It's really up to you. Like I I wanted to test what ProRes RAW looked like. So I got some ProRes raw files off the internet and started messing with them. 
Um, so it's really just about trusting your actual experience in your eyes as opposed to trusting what everyone is telling you. Because, um, you know, by all accounts, a lot of people might say, man, the Sony FS5 is a garbage camera. It's no good. You can't use it to shoot movies. But if you haven't shot with it and you don't really know what the footage is capable of looking like, then there's no way you can actually um, know. So you're, it's really just about testing it. And I've gotten to the point where I think the FS5 is the perfect low-budget camera to make movies with. It's really like the right size. It gets you the right um, kind of images and it gives you the best quality for the actual size. So... You know, learning that stuff takes experience and actual attempts at it. But if you don't do that, then you'll never know. So, you know, in regards to upgrading your camera, you know, rent something if you think about buying it and shoot something with it. Because um, a day rental for a small camera is going to be like less than $100. So if you're willing to like do that little test with it, then you'll really know what you're getting into. So, you know, I recommend not buying at the at the very high end because you probably won't even be able to handle it when you do post-production but buying something you know low to mid-tier that kind of meets the needs that you're looking for you know are you going to shoot slow motion do you want it to be a very high resolution for whatever reason um you know what, what are the reasons for getting a camera i think really you have to ask yourself but you know the, up the upgrading thing is also going to play into the the longevity of the camera because you know we we have an fs5 um but there's a new sony camera in the same size that's being released uh by the end of this year i think it's a full frame sony camera and you know to me it's like oh that, that looks like a great camera i'd love to shoot on that <laughs> but part of me is like well there's tons of juice left in this camera and we, we haven't even shot raw off of it. So we, we haven't even used the camera to um, the fullest potential. But there's already another camera coming out. And I don't even think you'd have to upgrade to that for a long time. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. I think it's important to like do your research, but also do your research with kind of marketing in mind right so like going back to the example of the red they have a lot of marketing and a lot of kind of i guess camera industry pull like they got basically the big swinging cock in a lot of ways so when you're looking into like what should i get and you google best camera best this best that and those keep coming up those really are the best cameras in a lot of ways but also keep in mind that they have they just have the most visibility too. So don't be afraid to dig. And I can't say the amount of times that people have seen what we don't say, whether it be the full, full movie or the trailer. And we get messages where it's like, this looks amazing. Like, what did you guys shoot on? And we say, Sony FS5. And without fail, every single time people are taken back because they just, you can tell they didn't think that this kind of camera could get that kind of image. And for sure they thought we were shooting on a red or an alexa or something like that but technology has a lot more capabilities than we give it credit for and especially stuff that isn't the extreme high end it can still definitely do what you need well if there's errors it's usually human error <laughs> it's not the it's <laughs> not the equipment it's very rare that the equipment's just gonna be like i'm gonna give you shitty images over and over again 
if you're consistently getting shitty looking footage, it's because you're not really doing your job. You're not like, I don't know, lighting properly or or maybe you're just a bad filmmaker. Um, but I, it's really it's really not about getting the best camera because I've said this many times. If you give, a, you know, Roger Deakins a Canon DSLR and then you give some asshole out of film school uh, an Alexa LF with like the these amazing anamorphic lenses that person is just going to give you shitty Alexa footage and Roger Deakins is going to give you really really beautiful footage and and you're probably not even going to know what camera it's shot on because he did everything else right um, it's not about the, the thing you're using. It's about the person using it. So if you suck, it doesn't matter what camera you have. It's going to be sucky, great, expensive footage. <laughs> that's just it. Yeah, yeah, that's totally fair. And I think this is something that, like we mentioned, we started with color and the dials, and now we're on camera. But this applies to pretty much every aspect of filmmaking. Even when I was traveling Asia this year, like the computer that I use to write and write and do everything like this is the only computer i have it's a 2015 early 2015 macbook pro and i remember thinking like this thing's getting kind of slow it, the battery's kind of dumpy on it now maybe i should get a new one and then when i got back from asia i just got a little memory card that i popped in the side of it i got tools to take it apart and clean it and it's working fine now all it needed was a cleaning and a little extra memory and it was very easy and very tempting for me to say oh you know well i can go and get a new computer and look at all the new things and it they're all shiny they have new features they're tempting it it would feel nice to get those things but really ask yourself like what do i need to do and when i sit back aside from that one short i did like a month and a half ago all i use this computer for is my daily life so like internet browsing some light writing and light writing things that aren't film and writing screenplays. And I do not need a high-end computer for that. This five coming on six-year-old computer will probably, if it, something doesn't ha something catastrophic doesn't happen to this, this will probably last me another three, four years if that's all I need it for. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really just like, I think there's a bit of like, seeing what other people are using and doing and stuff like that and being a little jealous as well because like there you know there have been times where, where i've seen like cinematographers using like alexas and you know these big cinema lenses and anamorphic lenses and all this other crap and i'm like what would i do with that <laughs> you know i wouldn't even know where to start and i have two two reliable lenses in my kit and that's all I ever use. I have maybe two other lenses that I maybe use sometimes, but in reality, everything I've ever shot has been on two lenses and the same camera. And I've managed to, you know, do do a decent amount of work where no one's been like, uh, you know, this isn't good enough. You know, you got to be or, or a client's like, you know, I'm not happy with this or it doesn't look right or something like that. I think once once. There are technical issues, like if the gear actually starts failing you or if you're not meeting a standard anymore, that's when you should be upgrading. You know, if I was if I was making like beautiful footage on like VHS tape for a while 
And then people are like, dude, you are a VHS king. You just know how to shoot VHS. And then people started to move on to like newer digital cameras, but I was still shooting VHS, but it was still, you know, good for whatever the hell it was. But people were like, hey man, no one, no one's going for that look anymore. <laughs> we want things to look good now. <laughs> and you'd be like, what? It's just like making the leap to meet the standards, even at the base level. But then um, making sure you're not like delivering shitty stuff because of some issue with your equipment or something like that. So I think those are kind of the main reasons you want to upgrade. Yeah, I could not agree more. And in fact, I think that's a great way to end this segment unless you have some other bits of knowledge that the audience could benefit from. Just be careful. Even, you know, yesterday I, I, there's a sale on these like HDMI slash SDI transmitters and they, they just have knockout reviews from everyone that's used them. They're like, these are the best receivers ever. They transmit video um, over, you know, 400 feet and they're like $200 off. And I was like, holy shit, that's awesome. Because I could use them, <laughs> you know, to be super useful to use. But a part of me was like, well, you know, how often do I need those? I don't see myself using it that much. So I just kind of like had to step back and say like, all right, you don't need that shit. So it's just, you know, being careful, not buying something because it seems exciting. Because it is exciting to get new shit. But I think just being careful and spending money wisely more on, on what you really need it for. Yeah. And, you know, I think... Neither of us are denying how real that temptation is because when you get something new and shiny that has these capabilities that you didn't have before, it feels good. And, you know, uh-huh. it's basically like to me, it feels like when I was a kid and it's like, look at this cool toy I got. And you just want to go tell all your buddies. But if you don't truly need it and you don't have utility for it, then it becomes like that cool toy when you were 12 where you show all your buddies or even when you were nine, you show all your friends. And then five days later, your parents are like, why aren't you playing with that fucking toy? You're mm-hmm. like, that's old toy. I don't want to play with that. <laughs> and then you never touched again. Well, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm unique in this, but I don't really have too much of that trying to be with the newest thing. Like, I, I don't necessarily feel that way. But I do feel sometimes like there's certain pieces of equipment that i can't really use anymore like i have like an old led light that i got early on it's like a bicolor light and then i it works fine i don't use it at all anymore it's like a backup in case i need it but i've replaced it with a newer led which is just much more efficient and it just looks better in general i think those are the times when you you know you should make those upgrades because i don't want to bring like this like first generation led to a set what's got like really old functions and the colors slightly off to like that looks like a <laughs> shitty light <laughs> at the time i was like this is amazing because it was really bright but the color rendition wasn't perfect but no one cared but over time it actually makes a difference in the image and stuff so you know you, you want to upgrade to get the best quality as well yeah yep that's fair and you know that has utility so i think it's very warranted yeah Cool. Yeah. All right. So, topic numero dos. Um, how this one came to be was 
we're trying to get our next feature off the ground. So I've been talking to people, or at least sending inquiries left, right, and center. And I got chatting to this one guy who said, you know, he liked the idea of what we were doing, but he had a full slate. And it's like, yeah, you know, it happens. You'll get that reply fairly often. And then a little while later, he messaged me and he's like, hey, you know, let's get on a call. And I was like, sweet. You know, this guy has access to funds. We need funds to make our next thing. Let's do it. So we got on the call and it started off, you know, regular-ish. Basically, hi, I'm this person. Hi, I'm this person. He's like, well, what are you looking to do? So I told him, like, here's how I basically see the shoot of this movie going and how I see posts going and distribution and all that kind of stuff. And he was like, yeah, yeah, cool. So, like, what's your biggest hurdle? I was like, well, funding, you know, I want a producer that can go get us access to money so we can go shoot this thing. And then he started saying, yeah, yeah, no, cool. Well, you know, I can teach you to do that. And it just nosedived into a sales call at that point. He's like, he became very apparent. He's like, I'm putting together a course. Here's how much it is, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, obviously I'm disheartened. I'm not going to pay this guy for his course. Mm-hmm. But it got me thinking, people don't often talk about when to take advice and when when to bite and when not to bite kind of thing. So I thought that would be an in- interesting thing for Latif and I to talk about on the podcast. So first off, Latif, like, have you encountered stuff like this before? Because I think it's not uncommon, sadly. Of like someone trying to like sell me like some sort of like program. Yeah, like, oh, here's the secrets. For this amount of money, you can know it all. You know, I think I have have seen stuff like that quite a bit. And it's always really skeptical um, because there's no, like, there's no thing that's going to do it for you. But I think early on, you, you maybe feel like there's some sort of thing you're missing that's keeping you outside of the industry or something. I think really, you know, a part of me almost feels like either you're susceptible to that or not. Because, <laughs> like, I just remember from high school and, like, you know, early college years of friends and stuff being sucked into, like, market, multi-level marketing things of like selling new products and getting points and then you joining the sales team and shit like that. And I always feel like, you know, if those people, if people who, you know, fell for stuff like that were in film, they would be the people that would fall for those kind of schemes in film. <laughs> um, and it's really like building the, the intestinal fortitude of being like, no, 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 no. I don't need the secret. <laughs> um, because there is no secret. It's really just being able to fight it off. But it's tough when there's really good marketing behind it too. And that's when like even generally sensible people will start to fall for the little, you know, snake oil being tossed around here and there. So, you know, you do have to be careful, but this is a tough industry for that because it's happening all the time everywhere. You know, I you know, film festivals are are that <laughs> um, outright. They're selling you the dream um, over and over again every year. And I'm no different from every other fool out there. I, uh, 
I buy into the dream and I say, yes, watch my movie, <laughs> you know, and I send it to all the film festivals. So I'm not, you know, I'm susceptible to that too, but in a way you have to be really careful and, and look into it and trust the gut feeling. I think with film festivals, it's just part of, it's part of the perpetual scheme of, of, you know, the, the early filmmaking uh, career, but that the thing about like someone trying to teach you some sort of secret and the way into it, I think that's when you have to really be careful and and vet. You know, there's nothing wrong with taking training and learning how to do things. There's stuff like that out there, which is legitimate. Um, and the person doing it, you just have to see if, if they're legitimate and see what kind of credits they have and, and also to see what other people say of their classes or programs. But if it's just some dude trying to sell you a program, that's when you have to be like, all right, what is this really about? Yeah, totally. I mean, in this circumstance, the dead giveaway was that as soon as he said, you know, I have a course and here's what it is. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And I kind of played along because I just wanted information. And honestly, a big part of me was like, we could talk about this on the podcast. So it's like, yeah, tell me everything. So he's like, yeah, so, you know, I'll just teach you how to produce movies and how to raise funds. I'm like, oh, okay. So, like, do you have, like, a course outline you could send me? I'd be really interested in reading that. He's like, well, you know, there isn't really a course outline because it's very one-on-one, and it, but it's eight weeks. I'm like, oh, okay, cool, cool. So, you know, just where can I find some more information about it? I, it sounds really interesting. And he's like, well, there... Like, I'll tell you the information. All there really is is a PayPal link right now. <laughs> and, like, you could just see this thing nosediving into the fucking ground. It was kind of great, actually. Um, but where you mentioned, like, film festivals are kind of that chasing the dream. I think it's a really good example of just sitting back and analyzing risk. Like, you're basically assessing, is this legitimate? Is this going to realistically further what I want to do in any way? And answering those questions can be really, really hard because, in fact, this industry is really, really hard. And that's why it's so tempting when someone comes by and they're like, you know, well, it's actually not that hard. And I can show you how it isn't that hard because the idea of having this cure-all or just this, if you only knew this one thing, you could do it is it's great to fantasize about it, right? Like yesterday I didn't know, but today I'm learning and tomorrow I can do. How great does that sound? But it's unrealistic in a, to a huge, huge degree. Um, one other thing or other aspect that I wanted to tackle on this a little bit too was since the pandemic hit and even before the pandemic, one thing that I really, really love doing is using free stuff to learn, like whether it be on YouTube or filmmaking podcasts or whatever it is i really love soaking in all that knowledge and i think that's a really great way to do things in a beginner or even intermediate level especially just considering that they're not taking your money right they're only asking for your time it's free for you to consume you can turn it off whenever you want to Mm -hmm. But since I've done so many of these things, and I did a couple of them through VIF recently, Vancouver International Film Festival, um, I've started realizing that the majority of the things that are said in these, I already know. And they, you know, it's already been, I've heard them multiple times through other talks and kind of already internalized them. So I feel like I truly know and understand them to a degree. So the thought came to my head of like, when do you stop? 
taking in the these avenues of knowledge and i to me the answer seems to be just when you're hearing something over and over again and you feel like you truly understand it because there's a difference of like hearing something over and over again or hearing something and reading about it repeatedly and recognizing the words versus hearing about it or reading about it and internalizing understanding and adapting it to the work you do um, so I think once you've reached that stage like there'll always be little tidbits in these things but when you're on an hour long seminar and you get 25 seconds worth of kind of valuable information and the rest is stuff that you've already internalized, then it might not be worth it at that point. Now, having said that, have you gone through this kind of mental practice yourself, Latif? Like, is this something you've encountered? Uh, in, in some ways, but not, not completely in the way you, you describe. Like, there was a time, I think, early on where I was very much, like, trying to learn as much as I can from, like, different websites and, and you know, with YouTube videos and stuff like that, just so I could get a hold of all the, te the technical uh, parts of filmmaking and, and all the other aspects of the process. And... To a certain level, you're always going to be doing that. And I'm still trying to learn as much technical stuff as I can as I keep moving forward. Um, and I think it's a necessity if you work as a technician in the industry. Um, you have to know what's going on because it changes so fast. But uh, on the more, I guess, philosophical and theoretical side of, of the filmmaking process, when it's actually about things like, um, you know, your intentions and and your your goals as a filmmaker and even as a writer like the the time the types of things you're aspiring to do i mean there's also obviously a very technical side to writing but even just like the the more brainy part of it where it's really just about concepts and stuff everyone is i think learning to a certain degree but at some point i I just started to tune out things like, like I, I don't, I really try to avoid um, breakdowns of people's work. Like I, there's a point where I loved that kind of stuff, but I feel like now I don't want someone to break down another person's work for me. I'd rather do that work myself when I'm watching it or, or afterwards. Like I'd rather think and come to conclusions about what a film means than seeing some guy on YouTube talk about it. So I find I'm avoiding any kind of breakdowns of films or any sort of, you know, thematic discussions about another filmmaker's work. Because I think you lose something when you're not doing that work yourself and when you're not thinking about it yourself. So I try to avoid those kind of videos altogether. Um, and I don't really enjoy listening to, um, I guess... I don't really enjoy listening to directors talk about filmmaking. <laughs> um, whereas I used to love that kind of stuff. But a part of me is like, I, I really have become interested in, in a couple things. I love filmmakers talking. I love hearing directors talk about other films. I like hearing directors talk about other films they love. Because um, I find that kind of nice. It's really like, 
they're really talking about like why they love movies in a way like there's if there's one person i could never get tired of listening it's scorsese because he's usually always talking about someone else's movies and i find that so kind of sweet in a way because he just loves cinema so much he's like oh, i'm going to talk about you know uh pressburger or you know fellini or Rock on his brothers or something, whatever. He'll he'll mention just like things he loves, and I love hearing filmmakers talk about movies they love. Um, and I and then on the on the other side, I love listening to technicians in the film industry talk extremely specifically about the thing they do. That it, it's so kind of nuanced um, with the technicalities of the specific. Um, part of the filmmaking that they they participate in so it could be like you know a colorist talking about um, color workflows and color science and you know introducing like new there's a new academy um, color workflow called ACES um, and it's such a specific thing that people who do post-production and color work would would think about and I find I find that very interesting because it's something that I want to try using and I love hearing people talk about stuff like that. So it's, and it's very technical. So the thing I don't really like to listen to anymore is directors talking about their own movies, um, film analysis stuff. And I find that I'm not really interested in, I guess, um, even uh, just general filmmaking stuff. Um, hearing about like how to do this or how to do that um if it's not incredibly technical i find i don't really want to listen to it because it doesn't seem useful anymore um if it's not information that i can do something with then i try not to do anything with it because it feels like a waste of time i guess i've broken it down to it's either educational or pure entertainment <laughs> Yeah, I would say that's totally fair. Um, another thing that comes to mind uh, along with that, especially when you when you mentioned YouTube, was I find it very self-satisfying in a negative way to watch harsh critiques of movies, especially ones that I really don't like myself. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, like I was thinking about it the other day, I don't know how much I really take away from it on a filmmaking level past like the beginner stages of when you'll listen to some of those and they do have some notes on, you know, why something is just terrible. Um, but it's really important to remember that hindsight is twenty twenty, right? It's so easy to watch a movie and tear it apart and be like, what a piece of shit. This didn't work. That didn't work. Why didn't they do this? But unless you're Sharknado or something, everyone's trying to make a great movie and it's it's interesting because I was listening to uh, Sofia Coppola talk and she was talking about how when her dad shot movies, he would walk onto set and the first day he would have no idea what he's doing. And I think by watching these critiques, especially the ones that are very negative on YouTube, it's insinuating that filmmakers always know exactly what they're doing at each step. And everything was very intentional. Nothing was 
messed with and each movie is the exact vision of that director with no interference whatsoever and it it really doesn't work like that like there's always going to be things that go wrong and even just assuming that every movie is made by one person that knows exactly what they're doing i think is a really really harmful way to look at it and in all honesty it's a very discouraging way to look at it because when you actually sit down to make a movie one of the, i think one of the first things you realize is you don't know everything and it would kind of be impossible to know everything yeah and that that's a and i have a really like personal point of view on that kind of thing because even you know scorsese said you know watch bad movies like see what you can learn from bad movies you know you should watch bad movies too and on a personal level i'm like i don't want to watch bad movies at all (laughs) i know how you feel about that i don't want to watch bad movies because it's so bad it might be enjoyable i don't want to watch them because it's such a shit show we got to see how it all went down part of me is like i just want to watch shit that i like i want to watch movies that i enjoy i don't want to be squirming through a movie or like kind of like half laughing at it just because you know i'm gonna be gone one day i'd I'd like to like fully enjoy the experiences and really have like impactful experiences with films um and also everything you watch like does something to you whether you believe it or not like every single thing you take in does something to you from the music you listen to, to the podcast you listen to, to the movies you watch. Um, you know, all this culture impacts you in some way. So part of me is like, I just don't want to watch the stuff <laughs> that I'm not interested in. Because even if someone says it's amazing and I should watch it, if I watch it now, that's going to have impacted me as well. So I don't want to take that in. I just want to let like my experience of the world be dictated by how I, you know, how I react to it. If I think I should do it or if I feel like compelled to do something, I'm going to let that be the guide. Um, and it, and this might sound a little kind of closed off and put me in a bubble, but I don't even like when I'm recommended things to watch. Um, uh, it, it's a nice gesture from whoever is recommending it, obviously, but a part of me is like, you know, the thing I'm choosing to like, spend time and and be with and really think about is going to be so influenced by my mood by the music i listen to um you know by by how i'm feeling during the time and that's going to really be the best compass for me to like pick what to take in um you know like i i loved listening to script notes uh for so long as a podcast but you know a part of me is like well i don't even know if i want to keep listening to script notes that much anymore this there's obviously a ton tons of useful information and stuff but at some point i have to make my own choices and go off on my own i think there's only so much of that kind of thing you can take in yep yeah i would say that's that's pretty fair so what do you do when you come into those feelings of like the the knowledge i'm gaining from this might be waning like that old you know, law of diminishing returns. Where does your mind take you? Well, I think it's kind of a, a good thing in, in a way. It's it's a bit of a victory. Like you don't dwell on it too much. Like I'm I'm not like having like painstaking nights where I can't sleep because I'm thinking of not listening to an episode of Script Notes or something. <laughs> like I've I've missed many episodes, <laughs> and usually I'm just listening 
if there's something that's like that sounds interesting to me then i'll download an episode but i i i think it's almost better because i'm really focusing on on in on what i feel like i need more of um and and not taking in what what i think i don't need um and that that's not it's not just pertaining to script notes it's just anything in general um but i think like having that kind of distinction and clarity with the choices you want to make is also just important in life in general because we're you know we're bombarded with so much crap all the time and we're having to make so many life decisions and choices you know from the things we watch to the food we eat to the places we go and the people we see i think when you you know break down all that and, and just simplify things and really be like you know I, I all i really need is this and i and i think i'll be okay i think you know for me ultimately i don't want to listen to filmmaking podcasts or anything like that in in the future all i want to do is watch movies <laughs> i really like just watching movies and I, i'd love to just watch them I, you know there are certain things that i i do really love because um i'm such a big fan like i love listening to roger deacon's podcast i love listening to him talk about movies and and talk about how how he works on on films just because i'm such a you know, big um, filmmaking nerd. But I don't really want to listen to so much of like, how do you get into film festivals? You know, I want to throw that part away <laughs> and and just, you know, immerse myself in the love of cinema and movies and not think so much about how do I, how do I make it um, and, and throw that part away. I just want to be focused on the actual experience and the art because I, I think that's really why I got into it in the first place so you know everyone gets to that point I think at some point you have to abandon the the whole like the way to do it thing and, and it, this kind of circles back to the you know the very beginning of this topic where it's like when do you stop and I think it's really when you just when you're tired of it <laughs> yeah yeah that's totally fair and it, it comes to a point where you can only attain so much of this knowledge, which when you're in filmmaking is largely theoretical because it doesn't become, in a sense, real until you go and try and use it to make something, right? So you can sit here all day, you know, soaking in and drinking this knowledge that these professional people did this and this director did that. This is how you act, whatever it is. And you can spend tens of thousands of hours doing it. But if you spent 80 years taking in all this knowledge and then you died, it kind of wouldn't mean anything, right? So, like, you have to weigh that scale of when does it become, when does that law of diminishing return kick in? And I think when you feel that happening, it's time to set it into practical use because then you enter this whole other kind of stratosphere of now you're teaching yourself as you go which is in my opinion even more valuable by a, a huge huge margin mm -hmm. yeah you i think you you know if a hundred percent of your filmmaking is informed by sources that teach you how to make films i think you're totally missing the point of filmmaking 
I think most of your filmmaking should be informed by the life you're living and, and the experiences you're having. And a very small percentage of your filmmaking should be um, impacted by the way films should be made or the way, or, or the way, I don't know, or the way Sundance thinks film should be made or the way that some, I don't know, Grant wants you to make films. I think if you're making films that way, then you're completely missing the point. Um, I think you have to abandon all of that at some point and really go down to the roots and just be like, what is really on my mind right now? And, you know, what's affecting me? What's bothering me? You know, what's making me sad? What's making me really worried? What's making me anxious? And that's really where you start making your movies from. Yeah, yeah. totally. And also, who are you? Uh, like, I know we've talked to this on the podcast before, but I feel like a lot of people's first movies, mine included, are kind of knockoffs of their famous or of their uh, of their favorite filmmakers. Like, Party Stories was my attempt to do a mm -hmm. Richard Linklater movie. And, you know, what we don't say had definitely had tinges of that in there. But going into this next, next project, like I've, I feel like I pretty much abandoned that and I'm starting to more pull from myself than people I idolize. So I think everything you're saying of, you know, there is a point of abandoning it and it's kind of like when you move out, when you turn 18 or 20 or whatever, you know, it, there's just, it, there's a point where you have to go stop relying on those, um, those knowledge sources and really strike out and make your own kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I, I think those things, they shape you in a weird way as well. Like there's a certain kind of like I think like those institutions are incredibly helpful, of course, you know, from, you know, film societies to film festivals to, you know, governing bodies that give out money to people. But they always kind of bend you a certain way. There's there's no version of 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 that. That's like, just be you <laughs> be yourself. Um because there's always some sort of stipulation and stuff. And I think the worst, it's its more, the worst part of it, I think, is really when you're thinking about how do I make money out of this? Um, and you have to make money, obviously. I'm not saying that. But like the very fine point I'm trying to make now is if you start from a place of how do I be commercially successful or how do I sell this? I think you're really making a huge mistake. Um you know, no one, no one's ever gonna start start a great idea that way. It always starts with the actual, you know, point of what you're trying to do, like knowing what the reason you're doing it is. Yeah, and, yeah that's how you end up with Tommy was always the room. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I didn't even know what his intentions were, anyways. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, that trying to make something commercially successful I think is always a weird way to start anything I always kind of like look at that as like a bad starting point if if the meeting is like now we gotta make this commercially successful like how the hell are you gonna do that um yep but y you know it, I, I think just 
it's a it's tricky you have to still i think it, my advice is if you want to work in the industry and like have some sort of chance of, at success and and be okay you have to play the game and try to you know be a part of the programs and and know what's going on and put yourself up in a in a way that makes sense where where someone can look at you and be like, you know, this is a filmmaker. And ironically, I don't think I'm doing that at all. I almost feel like I'm doing the opposite where I'm like kind of going into a small cave and saying, fuck everyone. I'm just going to make my little movies in my cave. Um, and I, and I actually am very happy doing that. It's, it's very nice. Um, so my advice is if you want to be successful, do not do what I'm doing. But if you want to be moderately happy um, and very obscure, then do what I do, because you'll get there quick. Um, <laughs> so I don't, it's really just about what your goals are as well. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy making my little films right now in, in my tiny room and with like no people. It, it's, you know, unreal how like satisfying this is for me, but. You know, if you want any sort of normal life and success, then you got to market yourself, you know, in some way, I guess. Yep. I'd say that's pretty fair. And I also just realized that we basically just told all of our listeners, like, you don't need to listen to this. <laughs> well, you don't. You know, you really don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in a strange way, though, that's really, that's really nice knowing that, like, hopefully as people have done before us that bestow knowledge upon even their intention, I'm sure is that they will share what they know and hopefully people will take it in and then they will stop needing that. And they will be the people that go to make the movies and the TV shows of tomorrow that we watch and that will run down the ladder and repeat and repeat and repeat. So in a sense of like, if someone ever was to listen to this and then go and make a huge movie and become a thing, that would be, you know, a huge compliment. Yeah. But, you know, I, I almost want to do the opposite of like what every, you know, YouTube film channel does or any YouTuber in general and say, you know, don't subscribe to our podcast. Um, I hope you're not listening in like a week because you're wasting your time. Probably <laughs> you should probably go do something important with your life. Uh <laughs> You know, anything along those general lines. Obviously, for a lot of people, it'd be like red flags. Like, don't say that. Hit subscribe. Please listen to me next week. Um, whereas, honestly, it's like, who cares, man? You know, in like 100 years, we're all going to be dead anyways. So just do what makes you happy. Yep. Do what's good for you. And if that is making movies, then go make movies. Yeah. Which, by the way, I'm stoked for when all this virus stuff is gone and we can make more movies. Yeah, I'd really just like to walk around the city. I haven't been downtown in so long. I know, man. I feel you. Like, living in this small town, I live in my apartment and then we go to my wife's house. That's it. Like, we literally do nothing. And just to be able to like you mentioned go downtown and say hey that restaurant looks nice let's go eat there and not have to worry about impending death or this virus that can destroy your nervous system 
I look forward to that. Yeah, and it'd, it'd be great to go back to a movie theater at some point. I don't know when that's going to yeah. happen. But. I'm super sad that I didn't get to go see Tenant. I mean, I heard kind of mixed-ish things about it, but the the experience of just knowing it's a Nolan movie and realistically, if you if I could see it in a theater, I would. I miss that getting that buttery, amazing, disgusting popcorn and a huge drink. I want that. Yeah, well, hopefully it all comes back sooner than sooner than later but uh, you know it's going to be different when it does come back it's going to change substantially so yeah i agree things are changing we don't really know how but i think even for you know independent filmmakers everything's going to change pretty pretty big way yep and when it does we'll be there maybe All right. Well, yeah, this episode has been brought to you by Acast. It's a podcast hosting service that's cheap and awesome. I am Matt Rawson. This is Latif. Thanks for listening. Go make some shit. All right. Peace, guys. Bye, guys. Bye.